Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. everyone welcome to casing the league on believe network and yes the music sounds different the intro looks different that's because the show format is slightly different we're not only casing the nhl we're going across all the major and professional leagues diving deep into the headlines top games of the week most importantly chatting with your favorite personalities analysts and so much more but i'm excited to welcome in one of my favorite humans in the industry it's john ledyard you might hear him on audibles and analytics you might also hear him on a bunch of different shows to get his analytic perspective in the nfl john how's it going thanks for joining me on the new rendition of casing the league oh absolutely casey this is a, a true honor of mine to see you come up in the field and be thriving the way that you are now and to be a part of being on the show and be able to talk about the Super Bowl with you. When you asked me, I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm psyched. I waited weeks because I was like, I have to make sure I pick on John at the perfect moment. And this ended up being the perfect moment, especially because you got two teams that are very familiar with the Super Bowl. These two teams met up just a few years ago. But before we dive into all of that, make sure that you guys check out Bet Online. Bet Online is a sponsor of Casing the League as well as Believe Network. It's playoff time and the usual suspects are heading to Vegas for the championship. Our partner Bet Online is your number one source for football odds, stats, trends, and lines with everything from point spreads to hundreds of bets on everything from, yes, coin toss to the color of Gatorade, maybe even some T-Swift in there, guys. Bet Online is the number one source for your championship wagering. Head to Bet Online and join today to get in on all the action. Bet Online, where the game starts here. Now, jumping back in, before we talk Super Bowl, I feel like there's some teams that were beyond surprising with their results uh, throughout the NFL season. You've got the Texans that weren't really expected to have more than maybe five wins. Um, you got the Packers, who we kind of saw some great flashing moments from and then some daunting moments from. And then you see the Lions, who a lot of people actually had heading to this Super Bowl coming up on Sunday. Uh, which team was the biggest surprise to you this season? Is it the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? <laughs> Not to throw us back to our roots too much, Casey. But yes. it, it, I mean, to, to, would anybody have picked the Bucs to go to the playoffs, period, let alone to win a round of games in the playoffs and to nearly to, to nearly advance the NFC Championship game? I mean, they had, they had the ball with a chance to do that in the last final minutes of the game. That I mean, that's an impressive season. Now, maybe if you kind of regular season, maybe you wouldn't say – them i mean maybe it would be houston i think they finished 10 and 7 in the regular season they won their division um but tampa mm -hmm. did that obviously too but the tampa doesn't necessarily feel like it because the whole season they weren't the storybooks you know there was this four and seven point in the season they're halfway through and it didn't feel that way but by the end if you look back and you most people thought this was a bottom five team in the league this season and that they'd be going nowhere and they made it to, you know to the final four in the nfc i think that probably would would qualify as there's been a couple of surprising seasons, but in a positive sense, I think the Bucks would, it would be hard pressed to find somebody who believed that was a plausible outcome at the beginning of the season, myself included. No, a hundred percent. I'm actually glad that you, that you took it back to our roots because anytime I've mentioned them beforehand, at least in the last three weeks, um, I kind of get chastated about it because people are like, well, the NFC South was a complete garbage division, but taking the division competition aside, People didn't have high hopes for Baker Mayfield. People were calling for Kyle Trask come week six, which blows my mind and also pisses me off if we know that I've never been a Trask fan, no offense. But, you know, the just what they were able to do, what Baker was able to do behind an offensive line that was extremely questionable coming out the gate, Big Red just retired. So I love that you mentioned them because there was a lot of question marks into where and how they'd be successful, which leads to the ultimate question. Can this team potentially possibly afford Mike Evans and keep some of that structure heading into next year? Yeah, they definitely can. There's no doubt. They can keep Evans and Winfield and, and Baker and keep this core together for sure. Even Levante, if they want to come back, they wouldn't have much else, but there's a lot of other contracts they can move um, and, and restructure kind of even extending Tristan Wirfs, which is going to happen eventually, obviously, anyway, uh, even extending him now would actually free up cap space for them to be able to, 
bring those other guys back. So there's definitely moves they can make. There's some cost cutting moves they can make on the, on the, on the salary cap as well to be able to get under. So it's definitely a possibility for them. We've been saying the same thing, you know, since I was covering the team back in 20, you know, in the early Tom Brady days there, but it was just, they can bring everybody back. It's a matter of whether they want to or not. Do they see the team as that type of contender that can push forward? That was easy to do under Tom Brady. It becomes a little more complicated under Baker Mayfield, but hard to argue with the results they just had. You know, obviously this change in offensive coordinator will be big, but it seems like they've made that change with Baker Mayfield in mind. It seems like they've already undergone some level of communication about that. I don't know what's necessarily permissible there, but um, they've definitely like opened up some uh, conversations about that. And so we'll see if that is um, something that they end up doing, but it, it, there's a, definitely a path forward. Even if Evans is a little bit more expensive than we probably assume coming into the year, if he's 25 million a year, um, then that's obviously going to get hurt a bit. But Delvante, you know, is probably going to just, if he wants to keep playing, continue to ride it out here in, in Winfield. It'll be a contract that's that's obviously one of the higher ones for safety, but it's worth noting safeties are, are typically are not the highest paid position on, in, the, on the, in the league. So that one won't kill them the way another highest paid player at their position might at, at a more expensive position. So that and obviously the cost cutting that could come from move a move from Shaq Barrett or a pay cut from Shaq Barrett should be enough to, to have them get everybody under the cap if they like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned something kind of important. There was the fact that it was noted that there was conversations and picking uh, Baker's brain as to who was going to be the best fit or a good fit to come in for their offensive coordinator search. So with uh, the big red hanging up his cleats, do you think that this team will finally make a move at the offensive line or put some money in their offensive line heading into the upcoming season? Yeah, definitely possible that they do that. Uh, definitely possible that they look at improving some aspects of the team that I think were good last year, but could be even better left guard. They made it work, but I think that's an opportunity for them to upgrade potentially. Uh, I think that they'll let Robert Hainsey ride this thing out at center for one more year, and then maybe they'll try to move Cody Mack to center at that point. Uh, but the, you never rule out offensive line out, but seems like they've got their tackles right now, but interior offensive line could be a need in the middle rounds of the draft for this team for sure. I thought the group they had, Improved a ton as the season went on, though. Got better and better in the run game. Um, was a good pass protection group pretty much all year. Not the easiest uh, pass protection scheme all the time. The play action helped a little bit this year, but still plenty, especially for the tackles where they're out on an island without a lot of help, a lot of five-man protections uh, in this offense. So I was pretty impressed with the group overall. I would be fine if they, you know, obviously left guard, something has to happen uh, because mm -hmm. of some of the contract situations with Filer and with Stinney. But they're going to have to make a decision, I think, whether they – obviously they don't see – I don't think either of those guys as the long-term guy. Obviously, Filer's older, and Stinney's been kind of a journeyman, you know, solid player for sure, but doesn't seem like a long-term starter at that position. So even if they keep him around to compete and to be a top backup for them, it does seem like they're going to have to go to the well to find something at left guard. It doesn't mean it needs to be with a super valuable asset, but it'll definitely be on their needs list. Yeah, absolutely. I will say they gave me some hope and some positivity, and now I can at least feel better watching this team because I had to stop watching them for a minute there. And I think, you know, as much as the community and all of Tampa Bay would miss Mike Evans, we saw Baker do something tremendous, which is build chemistry with the younger guys on the team and give them important roles during the game so that they can um, get in the end zone and get some things done, but kind of still Sticking with the offensive line theme and bringing in the defensive line, the conference championship games that went down last weekend. You got the Lions D-line that was the talk of the town for a minute because they started to step up production-wise. Uh, Hutchinson was a complete animal. Then you've got the Chiefs offensive line, who is arguably one of the top in the league, even though some of those guys are now banged up. What did you think of the championship games? Did you see everything playing out as it did with the Chiefs and the Niners heading to the Super Bowl? I honestly wasn't sure. I, I thought the Ravens had what it took this year to actually win, you know, at this level. And I know it's been kind of a series of disappointing playoff losses or not getting as far in the playoffs as they hoped they would, obviously. When, when you have a guy like Lamar Jackson – I think the expectation should be high. I think it should be as high for him as other quarterbacks that get a lot of criticism for not advancing in the playoffs. You know, Jared Goff has made a Super Bowl, and he's one of the most criticized quarterbacks in our league. And so, yeah, I think that the criticism should exist for Lamar Jackson, but as well as the praise. And that's the thing. Like, if you are that good, and he has proven now as an MVP, as a probably win a second MVP, 
those guys should be in the conversation uh, with the Super Bowl. They should be in competing for a Super Bowl every single year. And Baltimore hasn't been that team under Lamar Jackson, and that's not all his fault at all. But he does bear some responsibility in this one, I think, for not getting it done. The, after the first two Chiefs drives, the Ravens' defense was completely dominant. I mean, to hold the Chiefs scores as long as they did in this game, hold them to just 17 points, um, it was a unbelievable performance by that Ravens defense. They were truly remarkable, uh, and they have been all season, honestly. The way that they've been able to get pressure um, consistently all year has been uh, so effective, especially because they don't have one great individual pass rusher. I mean, Matabuike's had a great season, but they don't have one guy who's like the top-paid premier tier one rusher at any of their positions in the league. And so to do what they've done without that, especially because they don't even – get a ton of pressure, but they just convert everything to sacks. They create negative plays so significantly uh, as a defense, and they have good players at every level of the, of the defense too. So that group was absolutely outstanding, but Baltimore just offensively, I mean, it went flipped to the other side because I think these were the two best defenses in the league this year, and that's really after those first couple drives, right? It was like 10-7 or something like that. It was like you know the scoring was back and forth first couple drives. Both defenses figured the other out, and – it was just amazing to watch those units go at it kind of as the game went on. But you had three second-half points in this game. Like, it was just that kind mm -hmm. of a game. Um, and so uh, both these defenses proved that they're absolutely worth it, and it was kind of a fun battle to see that. But it just really never felt like the Ravens threatened, even though they lost by seven. It really never felt like they were threatening because their offense just could not do anything, and they didn't run the football nearly enough. The other side, I actually thought San Francisco was going to roll in this game pretty easily because I thought it was a bad <laughs> matchup for the Lions. Boy, I was kind of wrong about that. I think Detroit, obviously, it's been talked to death. I, you know, I think they're probably kicking themselves because of all the self-inflicted things that they did. And I had no issue with Dan Campbell's decisions. I thought he was right to be aggressive in the spots that he was right to be to, that he went was aggressive in because that's what it takes to win these games. He's won them three or four games this season with those decisions. So I agreed with those decisions, but I felt like a lot of players made mistakes to let the team down. Yeah. So you brought up some things that I'm ready to unpack because I have it on my list of fan overreactions or um, maybe fans were right to react to this. So kind of taking it back to the Chiefs Ravens game for just a second. One of the top conversations was the fact that the Ravens abandoned the run game. They abandoned one of their strong suits and therefore beating themselves. You saw a lot of the series open up with Lamar Jackson even having an incomplete pass in the first play or the second play, which obviously is detrimental. And then it became predictable when he immediately tried to go for the run after that. Do you feel like they came in and thought that they were, um, didn't need to run the ball down the chiefs throat, even though they have one of the best secondary defenses in the league? Yeah, it was a very peculiar game plan. I truly didn't quite understand the game plan, especially because they did early on in the game. They ran it a couple of times and it seemed successful. The chiefs have been not that great against the run all season. They weren't great against the run the week before. There was kind of a lot of things indicating that they should probably try to run the football more, and they just really didn't approach it that way, which is kind of funny because in the past when they had playoff failures, Greg Roman was blamed for, as their, their former OC, was blamed for not letting Lamar rip it enough and they're not throwing enough. And in this game, they went completely opposite direction of that, and they probably should have run the ball more. Having said that, does Baltimore win this game if they run the ball more? I'm not sure that the larger sample size of evidence we have in the NFL would suggest that running the football heavily tends to lead to more points. Perhaps it would have helped them move the football better, and then they would have still, I think, needed to throw it at a higher level than they did in this game uh, in order mm -hmm. to be successful. And Lamar Jackson held the ball forever in this game. This was one of the longest he's held the ball in a game all season. I forget what the exact numbers were, but – I think on plays where he was under pressure, he held it over four seconds, which is an eternity in the NFL for somebody <laughs> to block for. So I think that that until he becomes a player that consistently takes what is there rather than trying to play hero ball as often as he does, I think that even if they ran the ball more or better in this game, which I think is debatable. I don't think that necessarily the Chiefs are this un incapable of stopping their own unit. I think it's how they set up a lot of the time defensively um, is mm -hmm. that they, they are okay with that happening as long as they can take away the pass. They've kind of done this for years. So I don't know that they wouldn't have been able to stop the run at all, but I do think that if you're Baltimore, one of the things you have to consider as an offense that if, if Lamar Jackson is not going to take the plays that are there all the time, but instead always trying to make another play or to create a greater play that works against lesser defenses. When you get in the playoffs and the defense is tighten up and you're playing the top defenses, it is a lot more of a struggle. So to me, that's the big 
area of improvement for his game this offseason. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder, because I'm not going to lie, I counted the Chiefs out. They had too many games that were close calls. Their offense wasn't really being consistent when it came to clicking. It came down to whether Travis Kelsey made the catch or not was kind of the fate of them winning um, a lot of games. I give a lot of credit to, obviously, the brains being Andy Reid. Um, so that's kind of interesting to see if that would have changed at all, or if the Ravens underestimated their performance throughout the season and thought, okay, we can have some fun with this. Uh, you mentioned debatable. The next debatable thing is that you do not disagree with Dan Campbell's calls. Uh, one of the top calls that came up was him going for fourth down in a questionable moment. I didn't hate this because when it came to fourth down efficiency, they went four and five and that 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 last call was the one that didn't convert them to being five and five on fourth down. Um, this was the cost of the game in some people's brains rather than the drops, rather than some of Jared Goff's pressured moments. Uh, where do you lean with this debatable topic? Yeah, it's been a big topic of debate, but even if you look at some of the key moments in the game, I mean, Jameer Gibbs fumble was the biggest mm -hmm. uh, expected points added uh, to the opponent of any play in this game. So that's a huge turning point in this game, obviously. That had nothing to do with Dan Campbell. Um, Kendall Vildor dropping an interception that turned into a 54-yard completion to the yep. goal line, basically, for San Francisco. Um, so you talk about the swing of even if that's an incomplete pass, you know, you talk about, like, that's probably okay. You know, you're not talking about a huge swing. But that was the second biggest play in the game in terms from an expected points added situation. Like, that, that should have actually been a turnover. Um, if that's a turnover, that game's – I mean, that's you'd be difficult. You lines would have to make another mistake, obviously. But you know, those are the kind of thing, games that plays that a game. I wouldn't say it just turns on just that, but when you add all these plays up, um, Josh Reynolds literally dropped a fourth down. You know, I mean, like that was a conversion, and he dropped it. Um, and he dropped a third down on their next series, I believe. After the Gibbs fumble, they're at a third down. He's beyond the sticks, and he dropped that third and nine as well. So those are the biggest plays in the game. Um, and I'm not ripping on any of those players. Gibbs and Reynolds, I think, have been outstanding this season. They made mistakes in this game, and it cost their team uh, a chance to win. Uh, Jameson Williams dropped a touchdown uh, that everybody, nobody even is going to talk about from this game, but he dropped a touchdown that would have given them a 31-27 lead with eight and a half minutes left in the game. I mean, that that was a huge play in the game. It went through his hands on the left side of the end zone, and Jameson Williams was great in this game as well. And he just – it was one of those games where, like, even if you had good players that were playing well, other than Goff, for a change, you know, he was the one that didn't make any mistakes. And then those were the plays that let the team down. Now, there's a lot to consider from this game. From if you, even if you're going to cast blame, it doesn't belong in Dan Campbell's stuff because these plays happened. Those are literal plays that happened in the game. Like if those plays don't happen, the Lions win the game. And so those are the plays that cost the team. Now, you can argue were Dan Campbell's decisions correct or incorrect according to your opinion. That's a different conversation to me. Like, what do you agree with everything Dan Campbell did, or did Dan Campbell cost his team the chance to win the game? To me, it's not debatable whether he was a, a major factor in costing his team to win the game. He was not, in my opinion. Like, I, I don't know how that's debatable based on the facts of the game. However, if you want to talk about whether you agreed or disagree with his decisions, it's a less important conversation to me based on how this game played out, especially how those plays played out. But right. it's a conversation you can have, especially when you consider, okay, there's a lot of evidence on both sides of this. Um, per Nate Adkins looked this up, I believe. But uh, Lions kicker Michael Badgley was 9 of 20 in his career from 48 yards or more. That's 45%. Um, the Lions, and going for it on fourth and three or shorter, they were 17 of 22 on the season. So 77%. So when you factor that in and you say the Lions were probably about 77% to make, it was fourth and three and fourth and two, and the kicks were 48 yards and 46 yards. So one was a little bit shorter, but even in, even from 46 yards, Badgley in his career is right around 77. If you just factor in 40 to 49-yard kicks, in his career, he's right around 77%. So basically, they had the same – even if you could consider the fact that the one field goal was shorter than – as you get higher in the 40s, he started to miss more in his career. Right. Even if you factor that in, you're still talking about an equal percentage of chance of conversion in those situations for the 46-yarder. And obviously, as it gets much higher than that, you're talking about a lower chance. So uh, to me, it was just like, well, you just play percentages. No, You're not guaranteed anything in the NFL. You're just playing what you think is most likely. Because most field goals go in – People are wired to think of those as automatic points, but that's not what the numbers tell us. And because so few teams go for it on fourth and three or fourth and two or shorter, people are wired to think 
those are a low opportunity. Like you're not going to convert most of those opportunities because teams don't do it that often because so teams think people think, oh, they're not capable of converting that that often. When in reality, the Lions have been the team all season by doing it in these situations that show us how high the percentage chances of actually converting, especially when you have a competent offense, which they had had in this game, by the way, they were unbelievable this game. They just, they punted like twice in the whole game. And so it was one of those situations where they looked at the numbers and they said, you know, our numbers, our season sample size, our players were healthy. Everything about this way, this game's going, all of it shows us that we can convert fourth and three and fourth and two in these situations. They should have converted converted one of them. The second one, the 49ers did an unbelievable job later in the game. Uh, by the way, after the Jamison Williams drop touchdown that we wouldn't even be talking about this play uh, if that drop touchdown hadn't happened. Um, Lions did an unbelievable, or the 49ers did an unbelievable job on that play. They, Followed the motion man. It looked like man coverage the whole way. Then they drop out into a zone and they pass everything off. And Goff truly had nowhere to go with the football. It was a brilliant defensive disguise, the best play of the game for them defensively. And I've got to have a moment. Uh, and the Lions didn't have anything in that situation. So Goff ended up – and they got beat right up front. Left guard got beat in a protection right up front. So it was no no path for them to convert that play. Lions – or Fortnite's defense made an awesome play. However, it was one of those situations where, like, yeah, if you're playing the numbers – they tell you that this makes sense to go for it, and they did. And, and sometimes it doesn't work out, and that's part of it. But you, you could say that about the kick, too, and that's why I think people forget. Ultimately, you are just playing what gives you the best chance to win in those situations. Dan Campbell, statistically speaking, gave his team the best chance to win, and sometimes you don't convert and you lose. I'm so glad that you put it in that perspective because I think it helps people realize that there's a lot more going on in that field in the processing. And Dan Campbell trusted his players in many, many moments to execute the play, as you mentioned, on their end. And if it doesn't get done, then it puts you in different positioning. So I wasn't against Dan Campbell in the call, um, but I'm glad that you were able to paint that picture. Not to mention is that unless you're a Bucks fan from the past two years, the only person that should be haunted by fourth down calls or non-calls is anyone who lives in Tampa Bay and supports Tampa Bay Bucks, and that's now a past tense conversation. Um, you mentioned the beautiful disguises and the way that the 49ers just kind of basically reset, readjusted, and turned into the defense that we saw more so throughout the season. Uh, let's get into the big game, and I think we should start with the lines. You've got one of the most formidable interiors led by Nick Bosa for the 49ers being matched up against the Chiefs. These two teams saw each other just four years ago, but of course now there's some different playmakers on each roster to help get the job done. Um, what's going to help this Niners defense actually be able to contain and match pace with the Chiefs offense. Now, when I look at this, I see Chiefs offense that really only has three reliable targets that they consistently kind of spread the ball amass versus the 49ers who have five, six different targets that they've consistently used throughout the season. Um, starting with the 49ers defense, how do you kind of see this matching up? Yeah, on paper, it certainly seems like the 49ers should have some awesome advantages in this game, but I, it's hard, really hard to bet against Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and Travis Kelsey and that defense, uh, Steve Spagnuolo and what he's done on this stage. So predicting this game is going to be very difficult. That's why I don't gamble at all because I would never <laughs> want to put that out there for this game. But I, I will say that the Chiefs thrive on attacking the middle of the field offensively when they've been successful and not the deep middle of the field. The Chiefs have really struggled to create splash plays down the field this season more than, than any other year in Patrick Mahomes' career in Kansas City. They cannot create consistently splash plays of 20 yards or more. Now, against Buffalo, they came to life and they did it. They had like eight plays of 20 yards or more as an offense. I think five of them were pass plays in that game. And I think three of those came through the air, 20-plus air yards, I should say. Um, mm -hmm. Five were through the air. Three were actually 20-plus yards in the air, not a run-after-catch situation. And so – that was like, oh, there's hope. And then it all just went back down earth against Baltimore. Now Baltimore's a great defense. We'll see if that ends up holding true as they proceed forward against the 49ers. 49ers have had some more issues as this season's gone on, I think. Um, I don't mm -hmm. think that they are a perfect defense as they've been, or probably as, or definitely not as good as they've been in the past under Sala or under D'Amico Ryans. But Steve Wilkes is doing a solid job there, I think. The key with San Francisco is always going to be how much they get pressure with four. Uh, they don't blitz a ton. Wilkes would like to blitz more than his predecessors did. At times he will, and maybe in this game he decides to. I don't think he will. Patrick Mahomes, blitzing Patrick Mahomes has proven to be very foolish. Patrick Mahomes, the highest graded quarterback in the league per PFF against pressure. 
Um, a lot of that is not as simple as it seems in its face. He invites a lot yeah. of his own pressure but with the way that he plays and the way that he stands in the pocket and he's too deep and he steps in. And like That's just how he plays, and it's just not really workable for many other quarterbacks, but it is for him. He holds the ball a bit longer. And so some of that should be taken with a grain of salt. It's not like you can't get him to do a negative play while he's under pressure. Uh, but it isn't typically the best way to, to rattle him. Like You want to be able to play coverage more than anything. So I don't think you'll see a lot of blitzing from the 49ers. I think they will really rely on Nick Bosa to be able to beat one of the Chiefs' biggest weaknesses, uh, which are their tackles um, this season. I think that will be a huge factor uh, in this game is how good Nick Bosa is. Uh, if the 49ers win, obviously I know the percentage chances that the MVP award goes to an offensive player, but if the 49ers win, it won't surprise me if he is MVP worthy. Uh, from this game um, because I think his role is that important. Both Chiefs tackles have struggled this season, and so how they are officiated, both those guys are – well, Donovan Smith missed a lot of time, but uh, when he was out there, he was has had plenty of penalties throughout his career. He's been one of the most penalized linemen in the league. Yeah. And then obviously on the other – yeah, we know that from the Bucks days. Um, <laughs> and uh, Jawan Taylor is, is the most penalized player in the NFL any position. Um, so penalties were a huge part of the la- uh, when the Chiefs played the Bucks in the Super Bowl a couple years ago. They've been kind of a, a story with the Chiefs. They're a very physical team in a lot of ways. Most of those have been defense-oriented. Uh, they Defensive penalties would doom them against Tampa Bay. Um, mm-hmm. But I think offensive penalties are going to be key in this one, as well as defensive. They have a couple guys on that side of the ball uh, that are key. So the, the Bosa versus the tackles is the key matchup of the game for sure. If you can't get pressure with four and get Mahomes on the ground and create a couple negative plays, I think you're going to have a long day. The Chiefs do need to create splash plays on offense. Will they be able to? I think that's been a big question mark for them all season. Yeah, and that's what's kind of had me touch and go on how much I stand behind what this team can actually do. That's also why I counted them out in a a number of matchups. But I'm glad you brought up the Blitz because kind of – looking back at at Nick Bosa's production and how you said he can lead the charge to help his team pull off a win, you're looking at some offensive linemen um, like Thunny and I think even Humphrey, but more so Joe Thunny is pretty banged up. He's also listed as questionable for this game. If this 49ers defense smells some weakness or some more weak points on the offensive line, do you think that could ramp up the blitz potentially to wear them down and try to fluster and get some action on uh, Patrick Mahomes? Yeah, I think if Tooney played, it would be really imp- – I'm trying to think. Tooney, uh, what, <laughs> what, what is he listed at? Is he listed as questionable, you said? Yeah, I saw him as questionable. I think it was a torso, um, a bit of a torso irritation going on there. So of all yeah. things, you got a big guy uh, with yeah, some some irritation and inflammation in your torso. That's going to be irritating. Yeah, I I think he had a pec injury, and I I, I think he won't play. That's I'll just say I don't think they're going to say that because they don't want any competitive advantages. If right. he played, that would be pretty crazy because I'm pretty sure his pec's torn. Um, I don't know if that's out there. I know it's out there. I think that it's at least thought to be torn. I'm pretty sure it's torn. So I don't think he has a, ch- a shot of playing, but at this point there's no reason to let them know anything. Um, mm-hmm. Nick Allegretti has been a backup for a while now in the league. He played – well enough in the last game. This is a different beast, though. Javon Hargrave's a different beast. Some of the guys the 49ers have up front, Eric Armstead, different beast for sure. So uh, this is a really hard group to, to rush, uh, to block against uh, four-man uh, because their games are really good, but also their players are just like they have really good 1v1 pass rushers. I don't think that they've played to that level yet in the playoffs, and that's probably the weirdest thing with analyzing San Francisco is that they haven't played great football, especially defensively the last two weeks, and yet they're right. in the Super Bowl. Like, how often can you say that? Like, they haven't been the main story from either of the games that they've been in so far. For through three quarters, the Packers being awesome were the main story, and they're going to pull off the upset. Then the Packers fall on their face and blow it, and Jordan Love throws the pick at the end, and it's just a struggle bus, you know, time for the Packers over that fourth quarter. And it's all about, you know, the Packers had this amazing season, but they fell short, and nobody even talked about this morning hours, except for Brock Purdy, Everybody ripping on Brock Purdy. Go to the Lions game. They're down way big after the first half. Like, the Lions choke it away. Like, no doubt, the Lions choked it away. The 49ers took advantage and did some good things for sure, but the Lions choked the win away. So the 49ers have been a footnote in two wins, and they're in the Super Bowl. That is just a very odd path. I don't know that we've even seen something like that happen before with an NFL team where you've come out of and been like, I don't know if they were the better team than either of the games preceding the Super Bowl, and yet they're in the Super Bowl. Now, if you look at the larger sample size, they were absolutely better than Detroit and Green Bay this season. 
But just in how they've played recently, they haven't looked like that team really to me. And mm -hmm. they've put it together enough offensively. They don't really have a weakness offensively unless Brock Purdy's committing turnovers or making turnover-worthy plays. Like that's really, but that's not like that's not something you scheme against per se. Like it, those have not happened in any one area. It's not been like Jimmy G who threw all his interceptions against the same coverage. Like it's been a variety of different things. And more of Purdy's turnover-worthy plays come when he's under pressure. But he's also great against the blitz. So how do you get that pressure? Isn't that just normal for a quarterback to make more turnover-worthy plays? Some of those are are fumbles, strip sacks. So like, I don't know that that really tells us anything. There isn't. It's hard to look at San Francisco and be like, before like with Jimmy Grapple, it's like they don't threaten you down the field. So sit on stuff, rob the middle of the field with one of your safeties. You can get a turnover. You know, if eventually if you get this guy under pressure, he can't get out of it. He can't create with his legs. Those things aren't really true about Purdy. Like so. That's where it gets a little bit trickier to figure out how to schematically solve San Francisco because they're the best rushing team, as good a rushing team as they've been over the time this time where they've been a really good team. They have all their weapons healthy, which is an unusual thing. They've usually had somebody out during the last couple of years, and they have a quarterback now who can create and make plays on the move, and they didn't have that with Jimmy Garoppolo. So it is a different beast for Kansas City to contend with. Now this is, I think, the best defense in football, I think, They've been the best. Everyone was talking about the Ravens and the Browns this season. And no respect to disrespect, those are great defenses. But Steve Spagnuolo's group has been unbelievable and consistent all season long in Kansas City. So to, for my money, it's the best defense in the league against the best offense in the league this season uh, when Kansas City's defense is out there and the 49ers' offense is out there. I love it. I love it. And you kind of already started to touch on Brock Purdy in the offense. So let's kind of go there, especially – because you mentioned um, their ability to basically be versatile when it comes to scheming. And you've got this team that puts up, I think they're sitting at 257 um, passing or air attack per game and then 140 on the ground. So they have options. We know who those options are. Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle, Ayuk, Samuel um, Jennings has stepped up a bit here and there. And then even Mitchell has kind of been a nice kind of reliever for Christian McCaffrey whenever they want to switch up on their plays. Saying all of that, now you're looking at a very loaded left side of the field when they're attacking offensively because you got Ayuk over there, you got Samuel over there. Um, how do you kind of foresee the Niners offense attacking the Chiefs defense that's led up in the postseason an average of 13.7 points per game? Um, and then they're knowing to be one of the lesser of teams to allow air attacks on them. So do the Niners come in and try to run the ball down their throat or do they stick to their versatile game plan and find a way to win? I think that San Francisco is prepared to – I think they're prepared to attack what Kansas City gives them as they always are. That's the thing with having Brock Purdy now. And Kyle Shannon said this. Like he just has confidence in him that they don't have to play one certain way and just find a way to win that way. They can play more ways. And that's you know, basically the whole genesis of the Brock Purdy thing is that now you took this offense that had to win a certain way and had to be very silent. Now they can win in multiple ways hypothetically. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, Kansas City blitzes a lot more than San Francisco does. So that's – I think honestly, most games like breaking them down starts with what coverage like shell up top. Like, do you play two or high, one high or two high safeties, and how often are you blitzing or at least simulating pressure before the snap? Most of the time, Spags is going to send them if he's showing them. So, I, I think that's where it gets complicated with Kansas City. Is Purdy's been really good against the blitz this season? They lost Charles Amenahue. Can they still get pressure with four if they don't without Amenahue? Now, Chris Jones. No disrespect to Nick Bosa, I think Chris Jones is the best defensive lineman in this game. In San Francisco's offensive line, it's been fine this season. Trent Williams is obviously a stud. The rest of the group is fine, is capable. But it would be probably one of the less prominent offensive lines that we've seen win a Super Bowl in a while. I can't. I'd have to go back and think about that. I'm. I'm saying that off the top of my head. I could be forgetting an offensive line, but it, it's. It would definitely be one of the least prominent groups. I feel like that I've seen be this successful at this level in a while. So San Francisco is going to have tough moments up front in terms of blocking. The interesting thing about the 49ers is that they do tend to leave another guy in in protection a lot of the time. Uh, that could be used check. He's been obviously helpful for them in that way in the past and over the years. Um, it's a little bit trickier when the main guy you have to drop block is a defensive tackle. And Chris Jones is that dominant of a player that it's going to be – he's going to create challenges for you protection-wise because physically he might be the most dominant player in the league. Um, so that's going to be a real fix for them to try and 
but nobody moves the pocket better and accounts for those things schematically uh, better than I believe Kyle Shanahan does. Rarely do you see one opponent on a defensive side just wreck what he's doing uh, because, you know, even the Micah Parsons matchups over the years, like San Francisco's had a ton of success against Dallas despite Dallas having this freak up front because nobody plans mm-hmm. better for how to handle those players. And so Chris Jones is definitely one of those players. He's one of the tier one defensive players in the league. If San Francisco can handle him, what else does Kansas City have? One on one v one on their front, probably not a ton else. But George Karloftis is a good player. They've had success. Mike Dan has been a little helpful pass rusher for them this season. So they don't have no options. But losing a man of hurts. That was a that's a loss, and you know feel for him. Obviously, being able to play against his former team uh, in the Super Bowl would have been a sick thing, and I'm sure he's <laughs> bummed out uh, to miss that opportunity. But um, overall, I think that. See, if you're San Francisco, you're not necessarily tied to any one approach, but I think you feel like you can run the ball against this team and they want to run the football for sure. You know, I, I don't think they're going to get away from that in the slightest. So I think they feel good about being able to do that, which helps a lot because they are still going to take their shots and attack through the air. Uh, they have to like um, the matchup with Kittle, maybe, I think, the most because I am I don't know how Kansas City is going to approach it, but Casey, the the Chiefs' corners have been probably the best two corners in the league this season uh, as a pair. And watching them against Ayuk, and less so Debo because they'll move them around and get them in the ball in a lot of manufactured ways, I don't more than Mm -hmm. one-on-one matchups down the field. But how do they defend Ayuk? Does somebody follow Ayuk? Do they try to get as physical with him as they have with with guys in the past, Justin Jefferson, uh, Tyreek Hill? They've – done some work on those guys physically and it's it's really paid yeah. off in the, in the box score and in the in the final uh score of the game as well however Ayuk's a different dude if you come at him like that you better be ready because both Ayuk and Debo and Kittle like all these guys the physicality is what sets them apart Jawan Jennings Fortnite's third wide receiver yeah they're they're they are they're dudes and so physically I don't think you're going to be able to punk them like the Chiefs have other receivers and that's okay these guys are plenty skilled too the Chiefs have plenty skill at, at the cornerback position. Uh, but I will be very anxious to see how they uh, combat San Francisco's offense because on paper, they have been a great defense this season, but this offense will present more challenges and more weapons than any they've placed except for maybe Miami. And they did great against Miami, but I will say Jalen Waddle, I don't know how the how much of a factor he was this season. 49ers have three of those guys uh, and four if you count McCaffrey too where the Dolphins had like two, one and a half of those guys. So, you know, it just isn't the same thing when you think about it that way, as good as Hill and Waddle are. Uh, these guys have just been better. They've been in the system longer, and Shanahan's, uh, to be honest, I think a better offensive mind uh, and a little more developed than McDaniel at this point. So it's a different challenge for the Chiefs' defense, as good as they've been this season. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you mentioned George Kittle because I know you're not a betting guy, but of course we uh, have to look at those numbers because it's incorporated in everything now. Um, as we mentioned earlier, for bet online, you can bet on coin tosses. But I I had my my eyes on George Kittle for a number of reasons for this game. Um, he's always been able to connect with Brock Purdy from the get go on large plays. You saw a chemistry build between those two pretty fast and pretty early, and uh, Brock Purdy knows he can trust George. Kittle. It also gives them an option, you know, in the red zone as well as in the middle of the field. So we're looking at George Kittle to maybe have a production of over 48 receiving yards. Would you go with that? And also keep in mind, we saw George Kittle come up with some pretty impressive blocks as of late. So he can help out the O-line a little bit, but he can get off the line pretty fast and put himself in position to be an option for Brock Purdy. So does over 48 feel sustainable and doable for uh, George Kittle? Because that's somewhere where I'm leaning lining up this weekend yeah i'd be hitting the over on that i think um i think he's got a great matchup because the chiefs are i think going to commit to to taking away brandon Ayuk, and they're going to play safeties over the top and um i don't know whether they're going to be able to um stop the run without um another guy in the box but i think they're going to try i think they'd rather try mm-hmm. to do that and and force san francisco into more passing situations and just trust that hey we're going to have some points we got to score some points uh, we're taking away the pass. We don't want these guys to beat us down the field. Like I think they're going to be like, okay, if you want to run, you want to run, uh, go ahead. And I don't think they're necessarily not going to – it doesn't mean they won't trigger the safeties downhill and they're going to rotate a lot post-snap and they're going to do some different things. 
But I do think they're going to try and take Brandon Ayuk away and see if they can take away some of those vertical plays down the field. They're one of the best tackling defenses in the league. That have to feel they have to feel good about that. I think um, going up against a guy like Devo Samuel Kittle, some of these guys are amazing after the catch. 49ers are a different beast. Um, you know, the Lions and Niners are probably two of the toughest teams to tackle after the catch. Um, and so the for the Chiefs were kind of going to face one of these beasts anyway. It feels like, um, but they they really are going to have their work cut out for them in that capacity. But I like the Kittle matchup because I don't know. I don't think it's going to be one any one player. But the Chiefs linebackers are are good players. But to me, like their athleticism is where the group lacks. If you ask them to play down the field vertically, you're going to get them exposed. Uh, and I think they are great, great moving downhill and moving laterally to the sidelines to the flats. That's been a good group, and they've got they've got four players who can play at linebacker too, which is an advantage, but there are not many guys who are going to be able to run with Kittle at linebacker in the league period point blank end of story. And so I don't know that they're going to be, the chiefs guys are going to be any more successful at that. Yeah. They like to get them vertical. People don't even it's just George Kittle just had a quiet 65 catch 1000 yard season. I mean, for a tight end, <laughs> this guy averaged 15.6 yards per catch. I don't think enough people understand that if George Kittle had not run into the injuries, both to himself and to his quarterbacks for years in San Francisco, mm -hmm. we would be talking about George Kittle in the conversation for the greatest tight end of all time. Like talent wise, we would be talking about him in that conversation. If it was not for those injuries, he is that good at everything that a tight end position requires of you um, to do. And I hope for his sake, because it will be meaningful for, I don't know whether he's at this point too old and missed too many, such too much time with injuries at some point in his career, to be, you know, kind of remembered as one of those great tight ends, but he was on that level talent-wise, and he still is. And so I hope that this is kind of a game where people can remember when George Kittle in the Super Bowl did that. Like, I hope it's one yeah. of those games that can mean a lot for his legacy, um, so that people remember him as the talent that he that he was instead of the one that toiled for a few years there. But um, man, he is—he's a special player, and I think Kansas is going to have a really hard time defending him in this game. Yeah, and that's what I'm banking on, not because I will be betting on it, but because I think that he deserves a lot more respect on his name because X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, went absolutely berserk when one of his um, blocking plays ended up circulating the internet. And it's like, this is not new, guys. This is just George Kittle um, doing his job on another day in another game. So you just gave betting junkies a lot to digest there. One of the other top names that obviously circulates in this matchup is Christian McCaffrey. we got to talk about the Niners Swiss army knife. Um, they're talking about him hitting the over, I think 90 rushing yards and over possible 30 receiving yards. He sat at that 30 receiving yards in the last two or three games. I want to say he sits on that 30 mark pretty consistently. Uh, he's making two touchdowns per game look nice and easy and his consistency in finding the end zone and playoffs uh, speaks for itself. What do you think that Christian McCaffrey will do production wise rush and receiving? Yeah. I mean, those numbers seem about right to me. I, I don't, you know, I, I told you before, I don't really get in the lines too much, but I do think, you know, his, scoring you know it seems to be like one of the most consistent things in the league obviously they get down you know <laughs> the yard line and they give him the ball and he gets in i think that just overall like there's no reason why people always talk about oh they took christian mcgaffrey out of the game you don't really do that like you put the team in situations where they don't use him as much that might be it but you don't really take christian mcgaffrey out of the game like can you load the box and defeat the blocking scheme and all those things yeah but you even in the passing game like it's just do you did you tackle him after he caught the ball okay then you did your job you know but you don't really scheme to take Christian McCaffrey out of the game you can't because you can't afford to with all the other guys so as long as you know he, so he'll get his in the passing game basically is what I'm saying uh, I wouldn't necessarily be worried about that if he doesn't it'll be because they were other players were being that effective I think for for San Francisco which is a big mm -hmm. problem um for for Kansas City if that happens so I think he's going to be successful in this game 90 rushing you know I don't know where he falls rushing yards wise it probably depends on the commitment to it um I think from from San Francisco's perspective and maybe from Kansas city's perspective, how committed they are uh, to stopping the run. If they're more committed than I expect numbers wise, and they're going to force San Francisco through the air, then, then maybe I'll, I'll be wrong on that front. But to me, I, I just think Christian McCaffrey, you know, whether, wherever you want to look at the box score, like the fact that he can do so much and also plays all the snaps that he plays, he hardly ever leaves the field. He probably ever gets a breather. And so it's really remarkable to watch his physical conditioning too. And, we also can't say this about many backs. Like most of these guys, once they start getting injured and miss the ton of time that he missed and San Francisco traded a lot for him. And it was like, man, I just don't know. Like this position doesn't typically rebound as it gets older and become healthier as time goes on. 
once the injuries start, and especially the major ones like he suffered, it's usually the beginning and the end. And he somehow, not only did he reverse that, he's become more of a workhouse, workhorse than he was before. I mean, that is really remarkable to see. Like, that just does not happen. So kudos to them because it worked out. It definitely on its surface, you know, at, the, at the beginning, it looked like maybe the process was questionable, but it's worked out and he's been an unbelievable player. And he, he's also just amazing to watch play football, how skilled he is at the game, like technical, because he truly is none of the superlatives in the league that you would ascribe to running back. Who has the best balance? Who has the best quickness? Who has the best burst? Who has the best long speed? Who has the best strength? But he's all of those things to such a high degree that he's just like the best all around running back. So it's interesting that he's become as good as he is without probably the greatest physical or athletic superlatives you'd give to that position. Yeah, and to try to chase in his dad's footsteps because while Taylor Swift is awesome, I cannot get the the bylines and the storylines of you know Shanahan and McCaffrey kind of reliving their father situation and chasing a Super Bowl. So I hope it works out. But I will say this: I've got some hope in Christian McCaffrey and hitting those numbers because the Chiefs have allowed eight teams to have ninety plus rushing yards throughout the season, and Christian McCaffrey is almost as consistent as it gets and talented and athletic. And of course, if I could throw a hockey reference in here, because we know where my heart always lies. <laughs> we saw in this last Stanley cup run that the team that got the furthest aside from the Vegas golden Knights was the team that just consistently outworked their opponent. You've talked about athleticism. You've talked about the fact that this Niners defense as well as offense is very athletic. They might be more conditioned. They might have an opportunity to outwork their opponent but something else that requires a lot of hard work are the unsung heroes of the game. Are there any players that come frame of mind from either the Chiefs and or the Niners that probably could be a factor in this big matchup that's not talked about as much as all the star-studded names that will help bring their teams to this championship? I'll just give you two on offense, for one on offense for each team. So, because I've talked a lot, and so I feel like I I don't want to give you so many names because there always are a, a ton of names <laughs> of players that could. Because you know I have watched both these teams and studied them all a ton this season. But I think for the 49ers, the guy who's been clutch in these situations has been Juwan Jennings. Just seems like he makes a lot. He had a one-handed catch against the Lions to convert a third down. His blocking in key situations yeah. that doesn't get talked about enough. If you're just looking for an unsug guy, I feel like he has made those kind of plays all season. Just been a very clutch. Uh, performer and so I would say he's one to watch uh, in that situation and then for Kansas City no I think Marquez Valdez Scantling probably has to be that guy he's three of four on 20 plus air yard receptions in the postseason after struggling there all regular season it was a completely nightmare regular season for them but literally he only stayed in the starting lineup because everybody else around him was so much worse for the Chiefs receiving core so he just kept his job and like he's literally just the beneficiary of others failures and lo and behold here he is again in the playoffs finally making plays again after a season of just absolute disaster from him that i truly i don't understand it at all because it was that bad uh, after he'd been like pretty good at one thing his whole career with rogers and Mahomes, mm -hmm. and then this year he just couldn't do anything and then oh, in the playoffs there he goes making plays once again. So he's the guy. I mean, it only takes one target. And that's why I always said all year, as I wrote about the Chiefs for SB Nation, I would say, look, all these guys struggle and everybody wanted Marquez Valdez-Scaling bench. But I said, like, look, he is the one guy out of all these guys, you know, the other guys in the Sky Moore, Kadarius Tony, you know, when he was out there, Richie James, Justin Ross, he's the only one of those guys that can change the game with one play. So even if he fails, mm -hmm. just put him out there because he's proven in other games that he can at least, because he's that vertical threat, he can make those kind of plays down the field. That even if he's at bat on 59 routes in the game, that 60th one is all you need for a guy like him. The other guys, can't, you can't say that about. So he's the one, man. It can only be one play, but he can be the difference-making play uh, for the Chiefs in this game. I love both of those options. And, of course, before we close out, we have to ask the worst question ever. Who do you think is going to uh, win the ship this Sunday? Or at least which direction are you leaning in? I hate this question because it's just all too close. But, of course, we have to figure things out in the, very soon here. It's really difficult for me to feel confident in any choice in this game. I would feel really confident in picking San Francisco if they had played better the last two weeks. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know that I can pick them just because in good conscience, like, I just wish they were playing. I mean, this is going to be a month now where, like, I haven't really seen them play at their best. 
And yeah, they've they've done some good things. It's not like they've been horrible, but I just feel like you need to be your best to be talking about being Mahomes and Reed and Spagnolo and Kelsey in the playoffs. Like that's really hard. Um, on the other side, it does feel like San Francisco has been knocking at this door for a while, and it's the best version of this team that's been here under Shanahan. So it does feel like they are kind of due for one. Um, and you know, even if they got here a little bit fortuitously, uh, I do think that they're a really formidable opponent. So if they are able to take this extra week and play their best ball, like it wouldn't shock me at all uh, if they win this game. Not at all. Like if they can win it comfortably, and it wouldn't shock me uh, because they've been better than, than Kansas City most of this season. But the way Kansas City's played in the playoffs, how tough that defense is, uh, just knowing what their best are capable of on this stage. Um, and not know, quite knowing that about San Francisco, I just feel a little more confident saying that the Chiefs will win. Yeah, that's kind of where I sit on it as well. Um, you've seen the 49ers kind of take a few steps back where you've seen the Chiefs progressively start getting back into the rare form that we know that they can play in. And that's what makes it hard to bet against the Chiefs on top of the experience and how they've managed the situation before. And even though there's some different players on each roster, I will say when these two teams met four years ago, the 49ers came out strong and ended up kind of losing the game as it went on. Chiefs came in to turn into that second half team to seal the deal. But we've seen the 49ers be a second half team in the last two games. The storyline will be written this Sunday. John, thank you so much for taking the time to join me and talk as much as you did and give all of the analytics and insight. And for all the gambling heads out there, um, you got some really good notes here. So go use them and be sure to use it over at Bet Online. Once again, I am your host, Casey Hudson on Casey the League on Believe Network. This is John Ledger. You can find him over on Audibles and Analytics and so many other places. So be sure to follow him on X over at on John at John Ledyard. And until next time, guys, I'll see you from Media Row in Las Vegas when we catch up on Casey the League. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.